Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. All I will say in introducing my guest is that he has been a lawyer, is a business consultant, and was the head of the official opposition. Tony Leon, welcome to Hi FM, welcome to the IRR show. Thank you very much, Sarah. Nice to be with you Thank and you. the listeners. Uh, the reason I was keen to talk to you was you wrote an article about, I think it was two Sundays ago, um, in which you asked the question, what ails the president? And I, I've i had a, probably a, for many years, had a, a certain view on the president that probably doesn't reflect most people. But I'm curious to know, perhaps first to start with, is when you first met him and what your impression was. Well, I met Sir Ramposa a long time ago, about 1991, at the constitutional negotiations in Kempton Park. And he was then the uh, both the Secretary General of the ANC and their Chief Negotiator. And, you know, my I, I wasn't intimately involved with him. He did very little of the sort of party-to-party negotiations. I think he was involved in bilaterals with Rolf May and one or two others. So the I was uh, the DP uh, justice spokesman and the negotiator on the Bill of Rights, and there the negotiations were really done with Penwell Maduna, who went on to become in time the Minister of Justice, and Cyril intervened from time to time when there were deadlocks. And look, you know, he struck me as being, I think, what his best parts of his public persona are, affable, articulate, quite sensitive to mood and to nuance. And that really was about it. And then, obviously, after the parliamentary elections in 1994, he was uh, appointed the uh, chief uh, of the Constitutional Assembly, and I was very involved in that uh, two-year negotiation between 94 and the finalisation of the Constitution in May 1996. And once again, he was a somewhat distant figure, and we did on occasions uh, have bilateral meetings with him. And, you know, there was nothing really to counter the first impression I had of him, as I've described it. But, you know, all that being said, I I had no knowledge of whether or not he was decisive, whether or not he could uh, uh, read the small print of the documents before him, and whether or not he was prepared to take unpopular decisions. Because I think what has often been... Uh, lost in the mythology that is encrusted that reads of golden age of South Africa's constitution making and democracy is that the ANC, although it had a, a fairly significant bench of negotiators, mm-hmm. wasn't just him. There was uh, Joe Slovo and Vali Musa and Pravin Gordon and uh, many other notables and, and a huge uh, number of academics and intellectuals in their corner, whereas the National mm-hmm. Party had very few of those <laughs> qualities or, or, or personnel. Um, I think what's lost sight of is the ANC had uh, the wind of history behind its back. It had the overwhelming support of the international community who regarded, I think quite correctly, apartheid as the unfinished business of the late 20th century after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And yeah. he, he was not really negotiating against a very, very tough-minded opponents because I think the National Party had largely hoist the flag of ideological surrender. So while I don't want to deprecate or minimize the role he played then, it it wasn't perhaps the most difficult or arduous Mm. of tasks as far as the constitutional negotiations are concerned. As for 
you know, having to deal with the ANC, well, that's a matter in which I'm not an expert, <laughs> happily. So I don't know how effective or ineffective he was as the Secretary General. And then whether it was a hissy fit or a desire to make a lot of money, he basically exited national politics in uh, shortly after the Constitution in the uh, middle of 1996 and didn't re-enter the public uh, stage until he was appointed uh, or elected as Deputy President to Jacob Zuma. I did, though, have uh, one, I thought, noteworthy encounter before he became president. We were both addressing an investment conference on South Africa and London. I think it was late 2001. And Cyril had been in charge of the uh, discussions or commission on perfecting BEE, and which was then in its infancy or pre-infancy, really. And we were addressing a group of uh, about 100 uh, Deutsche Bank uh, guests at a conference in London. And Cyril was explaining the findings that uh, you would uh, be required as a, a corporate or a private, uh, a, a, a private company, public company, to divest yourself. I think the figure was 27% of your equity. And he announced this. And then, quite correctly, uh, members of the audience, who were no slouches when it came to you know, looking after their own interests, said, well, why 27%? Why not 50%? Why not 5%? How did you arrive at this figure? And I would have thought, you know, as one does with you preparing an address, you're going to say something that's going to generate some interest. You would have had some preparatory backstop. Or, or, and he, frankly, got flummoxed by the question. Mm. And, and I thought this was very strange. And I, I think that you saw there a, a small clue that salted uh, what was to come, mm -hmm. that actually he's quite good at making the big announcements, mm. not so good at dealing with uh, all the consequential steps, all the explanatory joining up maneuvers that are required to effectuate uh, policy and make it real. And uh, we've seen that very tragically in our current electricity, energy, and so many other crises that have metastasized on the body politics since he's been in charge. Yeah, I mean the extra—I mean the extraordinary ramaphoria that came with his being president. Uh, it obviously was partly a consequence of Zuma uh, going into the background, more or less. And uh, people loved him; they just saw him as a beacon of hope. But yeah. I had um, spoken. Over the years, to a number of CEOs and similar people who'd had him on the, their boards, and they pretty much confirm what you've said. He 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 didn't read board packs. He didn't venture an opinion. He voted with a majority. There, there wasn't that grabbing the the, the leadership nettle. And then a year, I remember I was astonished a year after he'd been in power. He'd been in power. Sorry, he'd been in government um, as president. He did an interview with. ENCA, and before the formal interview started to warm, you know, make him feel more comfortable, the interviewer said, Mr. President, how's this year been? And he looked ashen. He said, it's been very, very hard. And I, I, I think he just had no idea what he was actually facing. I think that's exactly correct. I thought it was a very perceptive article written on Friday in the Business Day by Johnny Steinberg, yeah. which I would reference that you know, he, he thought, well, he can make a few appointments and, and just the appointees will land up doing all the heavy lifting and nothing else will be required exactly. and then it will all happen. You know, uh, I, uh, I, 
I, I wrote a book two years ago called Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land. Uh, every home should have one, Sarah. But I anyway. have one. <laughs> <laughs> and what I did uh, in, in, in the first chapter of that book, I think it was the first chapter, I, I described I was in New York at the time, the United Nations General Assembly week, and that was in the first uh, few months of his presidency. It was, uh, I think, uh, 2018 in September. And uh, it was quite striking. He came and gave a talk that I attended in a, a hotel in downtown Midtown, New York. And the thing was that struck me about Cyril's talk then is that he was, I described him in my book as being like a sort of a, a, a GP, a general practitioner with not very good diagnostic skills, but an excellent bedside manner. Mm. And and I think there's something called the vibes theory of politics. That when people sound like us, they look like us, they dress like us, we assume they are us. So mm. you think, well, here's a, a very rich business guy. Don't look too carefully at how the money was made. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't sort of, you know, sweat equity or <laughs> Greenfield's entrepreneurship. But, uh, uh, you know, he's a sophisticated speaker because he's an educated person. He articulates very well. And then you think, well, everything else must follow from that. He mm. will be exact like us. But... You know, in the same article you referenced, I wrote in the Sunday Times two weeks ago, I, I just, he made a lot of clangers mm. um, in his time, but were they clangers? So in 2013, when he was campaigning for the ANC, and he said, mm, you don't vote for the ANC, the Boers are going to come back. And then it was retracted, the comment, and clarified and contextualized can, by yeah. his office a day later. But maybe that was the real Cyril mm. speaking. Mm. And, uh, you know, the there, there are so many other... Uh, hostages to fortune that he's gifted, which appear to be incautious remarks, such as, for example, the ANC is going to withdraw from the Statute of Rome, mm. the ICC, and then retracting that a few hours later was office or his party or whoever. But maybe actually that's really what he wants to do, mm. but mm. you wouldn't know. And, you know, his biographer, Anthony Butler, said he is completely enigmatic, and when Butler who's press of politics at UCT, wrote a largely admiring biography of Ramposa. Ramposa refused to sit for a single interview for the biography. So that, that's, that's, that's very interesting because something like the ICC, I mean, I would have thought it's a given that you're very quickly advised by your legal advisors or others that how extensive the process is, how long it is and how complicated it is. So in other words, you can't just sort of send them a note and say, thanks very much. We, we're out of the ICC. And, I think you, I think you've probably got the, a point in saying that the gaffes you make a reflection of the real Cyril. I mean, the famous, uh, uh, frog boiler, as, as, as people call it, that, um, uh, Mario Ambrosini referred well, to. Yeah, I, I, that remark he allegedly made to Mario Ambrosini, and it's, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know whether, whether he did make it, but once again, there's no confirmation mm. denial, and Mario died uh, many years mm. ago, so we just simply don't know. Um, but I assume he wouldn't invent such a story. But, uh, yeah, it's all come to pass, as they say. I think this is... Except it, I think the heat is uh, so it's, being... It's uh, in the, <laughs> we're all boiling. Um, I think well, the... the temperature is going because up. And, uh, but I think he's, he's, he's in, the, in, the, in the pot with us. I think this gives gives... Credence, I think, to his the fact that he sets up committees and um, uh, the, he desperately needs... Somehow something to come out of somewhere else by someone else in order to get yeah. something done. And he can't cope, or he just can't cope with the idea that he may have to intervene to make sure that something happens. 
Well, and I don't know that he actually has an end goal in mind. You know, I, I was very struck, and I don't want to, you know, go, go down a rabbit hole, but uh, my wife and I watched this extraordinary, I think it's a six-hour series on from PBS in the United States called The United States and the Holocaust, which deals, mm-hmm. you know, why the United States didn't do more about the Holocaust or the bombing Auschwitz, all those big questions and acting. But what it actually, the sub-theme of that series is the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt, mm-hmm. which is quite extraordinary because... He was extremely cautious, but he had an end goal in mind. Mm. He knew that America was overwhelmingly isolationist. He knew that America didn't want to get involved in the Second World War, but he edged America. I mean, courtesy of Japan's attack, but that, but that he, he teed up all the shots so that America would get involved at some point. And even before it got involved, that it could come to the aid of beleaguered Britain and the Soviet Union, as it happened through Lend-Lease and others. But he, 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 he was clear from day one that Nazi Germany and Hitler were profound evils that democracy couldn't withstand their victory in Europe or its victory in Europe. But he also had to take public opinion along with it, which was very mm-hmm. difficult to do with Lindbergh and the isolationists and, and America first, and all coming back to haunt us again now. But, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, but, but he had an end goal in mind and he pursued it, admittedly in a rather crab-like way. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a, flamethrower, but he, he was a brilliant politician, but he had a vision of leadership, of what his presidency would be about. You know, who knows? Cyril might have a vision of his presidency other than the ANC winning the next election, but it's very opaque at the mm-hmm. moment, and if he is planning on being a successful president, he's giving every indication of going about it in profoundly the wrong way, or series of ways. One comment has been that uh, the the one area he's been a success in is sort of marginalizing the RET faction within the party. I'd like to ask if you agree with that and whether there is, in fact, an RET faction and a Cyril faction as opposed to just a sort of Zuma faction and a Cyril faction. Well, it's a very good question because uh, (laughs) I think he has, you know, to the extent there's something with a label RET and it was led by various people who have either been marginalized or in the criminal doc, such as, uh, such a- this, uh, I, wonder, I don't know if he's going to see his day in court. Uh, well, it gets delayed. Um, uh, Ace Machashulo, you know, if you go back two years, Sarah, he was a prime evil. If you were mm. worried about corruption, uh, metastasizing in South Africa and, and the worst people taking over in Kusasana, Zuma's been, you know, bowler hatted into the most inconsequential ministry <laughs> available. Uh, so, yes, in, in, uh, he's, that's been a great success. His re-election campaign was a great success, but nothing really seems to have changed. Mm. The corruption continues, the disablement of all state companies through these patronage networks of, of high levels of effective criminality, that has continued unabated. So while those of the RET, if you put a label on people, are indeed marginalized and the campaign against them has indeed been successful, the achievement is a period. Mm. It's, 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 it's a victory mm. really without a winner here because if the idea was not just to get certain personalities out of the way, but to completely interdict and curb all the tendencies mm. that those personalities in the RET represented, then it's been a complete failure. Just surmise, um, if he'd grabbed the nettle when he came in at the beginning of his first term and, and really put a stamp on what he should have, if not wanted to do, 
could the right personality have made the difference, or is the ANC too pickled in aspect and and sort of contracts underhand to have to be led? Well, that's 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 an interesting question. Look, I, I think the cardinal policies, and I don't want to sound like an echo chamber for the IRR, which has been named. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I have to say that I was in the front line when all these policies were, you know, the cadre deployment and uh, BEE and employment equity were really being uh, birthed in the parliamentary process. It wasn't a very popular position. I, I took a very strong stand against them because I thought, not because I didn't want racial equity, not because I didn't want reparations for apartheid, not because I didn't want an empowered citizenry, but because I realized without being a, you know, just, I wasn't clever about it, just obvious, that all these things would be obstacles to economic growth, mm. would lead to more unemployment, would lead to opening the sluice gates for potential corruption. All that was clear at the beginning. And, you know, if the Archangel Gabriel descended from the heavens and took over the leadership of the ANC, but was told at the same time, you are now our leader, but you cannot interfere with these policies. You can't uh, amend the core pol- political framework that we're gifting you. Then I think even that extraordinary figure of, you know, <laughs> from the cosmos would, would, would be hard pressed to make a difference. O- of course, you could do what Tabo and Becker did. I mean, we did many things mm. badly, but he, he just basically took a view. Well, I'm going for economic growth and I'm going to do certain things that are very unpopular. But even he stopped short mm. of implementing his own agenda when the political opposition within the ANC and the Kasata became too strong. And ultimately, not for that reason alone, he was removed as the head of the A, the president of the ANC. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure you can reform the ANC. Mm. I don't know that it is mm. reformable. Mm. Uh, it, it is if you kept the party sort of, you know, logo and colors, but fundamentally ushered out most of its political uh, uh, framework of the last 20 years, then yes, but that's very improbable. Uh, Tony, just the the last thing I want to canvas with you is the speed with which he said he would resign after Pala Pala, the the report came out saying there, there may be a case to answer. That suggested that he, you got the impression that he, he was dying to go. He was absolutely dying yeah. to go. And then he was strong on because probably he was the most popular. He was much more popular than the party, even though his popularity was waning. He's not really been a man who, who wants it for power. He's, it's almost like he wants it for his CV. Um, he wanted to show that he'd become the head boy. Yeah, one does get that impression. Look, I'm, I, I, I can't uh, and I have no claims to being able to. Uh, interrogate the psyche of our president. So I, I don't know why he sought the office other than to, to be the president, as you suggest. He certainly doesn't seem to really do anything or, or, you know, I, every politician, and look, I mean, I lead the opposition. It's a much smaller enterprise than leading the government of South Africa. But when you're elected to a leadership position, you start, it's like capital in the bank. You, mm. you have a lot of capital because you've just won an election, whether it's an internal mm. election or an external election. And every day that you're in office, your capital starts diminishing. It's just the law of invest, unless you go and reinvest it and uh, get some good returns. It's very difficult these days. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so you've either got to seize the moment and say, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to have a legacy that's going to mean something, not just to me, but to the country and to the movement that I was uh, elected to represent. 
or I'm just going to preside. Mm. And it's on all evidence he's a presider, not a leader. Mm. Tony, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I think that was a lot of fun in, and sort of confirming um, a few views, shall we say, and we can go back and say, yeah, guys, I told you so five years ago, or whatever the case was. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Sarah. Be well and uh, all the best to listeners at High FM.